I was just sitting here thinking about how thankful I am for all the people that I've had an opportunity to work with over the years in neuromonitoring. I mean, there are some really, truly amazing people in our field. You know, I actually started making a list of people I thought I might like to give a shout out to in this episode, and I was like, this is crazy. There's too many people. No one would want to sit through that. So I picked a few people totally at random. Here's a big shout out to Jay Jones, James Blaylock, Morgan Spaldoni, Danielle Stewart, Stickum, Julie Trot, who doesn't like my analogies, Scott Davis, Katie Overzet, Josh Murgos, Natalie Paratree, Claire Gale, Jordan Breckenridge, and Kent Rice. I'm sending all my love to everyone working in my hometown of Philly, my crew from Milwaukee, my team in Nashville, and all my friends at Neurophysiology Services Australia on the other side of the world. If I didn't mention you, just know I'm thinking about you. Thank you for making neuromonitoring great. I'm Rich Vogel, and this is Stimulating Stuff. Let's go. Welcome back to the Stimulating Stuff podcast. I am Rich Vogel, and you are by far my favorite listeners, both of you. Just kidding. Let me just say, I'm recording this episode on the 4th of July. I launched this podcast just five days ago, and I've already had several hundred listens. What? That's amazing. Thank you. I hope you keep listening, and please consider sharing this podcast with your workmates and everyone in your network on socials. I appreciate you. Well, I've got some great stuff for you in today's episode, and I'm even going to bring in a very special guest because I just feel like arguing with someone. Stay tuned for that. This episode is the third in a four-part series in which I'm discussing what is happening in neuromonitoring. If you haven't already listened to the two previous episodes, you should really go back and check those out first because each one builds on the next. Previously, I talked about many of the challenges that neuromonitorists and managers are facing in their work today and the things that concern them. In this episode, I'm going to be sharing what these folks need to know about what's happening in neuromonitoring, beyond what I've already said in previous episodes. Before I jump in, one little disclaimer. A lot of what I talk about today is going to be focused on outsourced neuromonitoring providers, people who aren't employed by the hospitals. The main reason is because it's what I know best, and I'd be making a lot of assumptions about what we call in-house neuromonitoring. For example, when I think about in-house neuromonitoring providers, I assume other hospital staff view you as a member of the team. I assume you have a dedicated workspace in a lab, a badge, scrubs, access to patients and their records, and your neurology team is right there on site to support you. You probably live close to the hospital, so your commute isn't bad. You may have odd hours, but at least they tend to be predictable, and you likely have a team of coworkers who give you breaks and share responsibilities for taking call. I don't know if that's all accurate. I really don't. But what I do know is that there's no way that your life is as rosy as I made it sound. I'm sure you have struggles and challenges that you face every single day, and I will definitely invite guests for interviews to set me straight. Anyway, everything that I just mentioned, my assumptions about the in-house neuromonitoring experience, is virtually non-existent in the outhouse, I mean outsourced setting, which comprises about 75% of all of neuromonitoring. So... That's going to be today's focus. God, shut up already. Let's go. Okay, let's get to it. To kick things off, 
I want to share a day in the life of a neuromonitorist who works for a private neuromonitoring company so everyone can really understand what things are like out there. Here we go. You wake up at 4.45, you do your morning routine and leave the house by 5.15. If you have kids, they're still asleep. You arrive at the hospital by 6.30 and park in the visitor's lot. You enter the lobby and sign into the vendor system, assuming it works that day. You make your way through the hospital hauling all of your neuromonitoring equipment and find the vending machine for sales reps. You enter your credit card or your ID number and it dispenses your paper scrubs and red hat. Those paper scrubs have a giant sign on the front that says, Visitor. It's so embarrassing wearing that thing. Your first case starts at 7.30 and you need to be in the OR by 7 a.m. so that you have time to set up all of your equipment, prep your electrodes, and connect with oversight. Only problem is, you can't set up anything until Biomed checks your system, but they don't start work until 7 a.m. and can't get to you until 7.15. No matter how early you arrive at the facility, you're forced to be late. By the time Biomed finishes checking your equipment, you have 10 minutes before the patient comes into the OR. You're rushing to set up equipment, prep electrodes, open your monitoring program, interview and consent the patient, that's if they even let you into the holding area, talk to anesthesiologist, talk to the surgeon, connect with the neurologist, etc, etc, etc. When you walk into the OR, it's made perfectly clear that no one wants you there. You look like a sales rep in those paper scrubs, and reps aren't allowed in the OR until the patient is under anesthesia. You state your case to the circulating nurse who points you over the corner behind the anesthesia machine and the electrical boon. It's a three foot by three foot space that's difficult to reach behind all the wires, hoses, and equipment. You have no clout, everyone is mean to you, no one cares to hear your name, and when they talk about you or when they talk to you, they refer to you as SSCPs or SEPs. When the patient comes in the OR, you're still setting up your program, but you rush to apply your electrodes and get baselines. The whole room is staring at you, and the surgeon is yelling at you to hurry, or in some cases, just proceeding with positioning and draping the patient regardless of your baselines, always managing to dislodge a few of your electrodes along the way. This is the most hectic time of surgery. Meanwhile, the neurologist is sending you paragraphs of disclaimers and asking questions that at this very moment you don't have time to answer. You just can't seem to please anyone. Finally, things start to settle down and you're monitoring the case, but you're also trying to get ahead of your paperwork because you have three more cases to follow and there's no one there on site to provide you relief or support. So things have finally settled down. You're monitoring the data, just praying there isn't an alert, so you don't have to interrupt the surgeon who made it clear he doesn't want to hear from you. In fact, a few months ago, the surgeon told you to sit in the corner and keep your mouth shut until he asks you for something. The last time you tried to tell the surgeon about a data change, he screamed at you like a child and made you feel like the lowest form of life on earth. Everyone in the OR thought it was funny. You did not. You're very well aware of the fact that if you anger the surgeon, your company could lose the account, or you'll be out of a job, or maybe the surgeon will just demand they fire you. You just want things to go smoothly. So the case finishes up and you spend the rest of your day doing the same thing, but you're jumping between rooms, following the surgeon to cover his cases, and you just can't seem to catch up. A few years ago, there were two neuromonitorists on site there to cover both rooms, but your workmate left for another job and the company won't hire a replacement. So you hustle constantly, all day, 12 hours straight. You finish your work at about 6 p.m., 
and take your first bathroom breaks in 6.45 a.m., sitting on the toilet, cramming peanut butter crackers in your mouth, and quietly admiring your own efficiency. Finally, the stress is beginning to subside. You head back to the locker room to get changed, hoping your clothes weren't stolen because the hospital won't allow you a safe place to store your belongings. Luckily, everything's there. A few minutes later, you're in the hallway packing up your equipment, and the feelings of the day start to set in. You feel exhausted, underappreciated, overworked, marginalized, isolated, and alone. You don't understand why they treat you this way. You're just trying to do your job, and no one seems to care. No one will give you a chance. As you drive home, you contemplate looking for another job, but you can't take the risk right now. Your family needs the money. You get home at about 7 p.m., just in time to tuck your kids into bed if you have them. You cram some food in your belly, watch 30 minutes of TV to relax with your spouse, assuming you're married or have a significant other, and... Then you head to bed to do it all again tomorrow, probably at a totally different facility, maybe on the other side of the state. If you happen to be on call that night and you actually get a call, you need to jump out of bed, go straight to your car, drive back to the hospital 45 minutes away, and do it all again. Only difference is, now it's 3 a.m., everyone will be angry at you for taking so long because you're the only one driving in from off-site and you start the whole process over again. Keeping in mind, it will now be more than 20 hours before you're back home again because skipping tomorrow's case is never an option. As you fall asleep, you often think, why am I living to work when I should be working to live? Whew, damn. I mean, what a grind. I hope I did this justice because I know so many of you out there lead this life or some form of it. Being a neuromonitorist is a difficult job that so few people seem to understand. You work around people all the time, but no one thinks of you as being part of the team. No one is friendly to you. No one talks to you. No one appreciates you. Surrounded by people and yet so isolated. Now, I know people have different experiences. And some people actually have the benefit of working at facilities that care and treat you as a member of the team. But this is not the norm, not by a long shot. That's actually rare. Sometimes I think this might be one of the worst jobs in all of healthcare. And then there are days that are so rewarding, there's nothing else in the world you'd rather do, such as the life of a neuromonitorist working for an outsourced company. Now I want to switch focus a little bit and I want to talk about how things have changed in recent years and where they're going, but I'm going to focus on quality and competency for the most part. You know, there are so many things in this world that you can think of in terms of a spectrum. There are spectrums or spectra for light and sound that range from low frequency to high frequency. You can think about salary, home values, and IQ. So many things, each is having a spectrum. Well, there's also a spectrum in terms of quality and competency in neuromonitoring. There's high-quality data and low-quality data. And there are highly competent neuromonitorists and people who, let's say, are of lower competence. When you consider a spectrum of all neuromonitorists working in the U.S., I think, ideally and realistically, the best-case scenario would be what's called a skewed distribution meaning that the overwhelming majority of neuromonitorists would be well above 50% in terms of quality and competency. If that were true, 
it would mean a minority of people would fall below 50%, and maybe just a handful of people would be considered, I don't know, really, truly terrible at this job? I could be wrong, but my perception is, if we went back 10 to 15 years, that's exactly what we would find. Things are different today. I feel like the curve has shifted, and many other people do too. Today, I think it's more of a normal distribution, or what some people might refer to as a bell curve. In this case, the majority of people are sitting right there square in the middle region, hovering around 50%. Not great, not terrible, just mediocre. In some situations, like home values and IQ, that's probably perfectly normal. It's okay. But in patient care, it's a problem because it means that fewer patients are getting high-quality neuromonitoring by really highly competent providers. And at the extreme ends of the spectrum, as compared to the skewed distribution that I described a minute ago, there are now fewer people at the top what we call superstars, and there are more people at the bottom. It's really interesting. You would think our profession would become more advanced, more refined as we mature from our early days, but it seems to be regressing. I'm definitely not alone in this thinking. Over recent years, a lot of people have noticed the quality of neuromonitoring data being collected is getting worse, the documentation is getting worse, and the communication, whether that's in person to surgeons or anesthesiologists or remotely to neurologists via chat, it's getting worse. I'm really concerned about this personally and there's growing concern amongst neurologists, anesthesiologists, and surgeons. As neuromonitorists and managers, you should definitely be concerned too. So let's talk about some of the things that I think are driving this change. What it looks like to me from the outside of these technical services companies is corporate education programs have decreased in duration and depth. People are learning just enough to pass the CNAM or go solo on a lumbar case, then forgetting what they learned. And frankly, it appears as if there are more people working in neuromonitoring who don't care about their work. I'm not saying this is the majority. There just seem to be more people who act this way than there used to be. The stress, the burnout, I get. But the lack of ownership over the work, the lack of understanding that there's a patient on the table who is relying on the neuromonitorist to advocate for them, and the apathy that seems to exist when it comes to self-improvement, education, continuing education, quality, being part of something bigger than oneself or one's company, is blindingly obvious in some cases, and the problem appears to be growing. How did this become okay? A big part of the problem is that companies are investing less money in the initial education and training of neuromonitorists. Some people don't get it at all, and companies are allocating less money to continuing education. I'm going to the asset meeting in a few weeks. It'll be my third conference this year. To be fair, I go to a lot of conferences, but when I was at the ASNM annual meeting back in May, there were maybe 150 people there. There are probably about four to 5,000 people working in neuromonitoring in this country. The ASNM, among other societies, including Asset and ACNS, there's the best educational opportunities that you can get out there, and 150 people show up. 
Companies aren't providing the financial support like they used to, and neuromonitorists aren't willing to advance their education, their career with an out-of-pocket expense. So fewer people are getting the education that they need. By the way, I just talked about going to Asset in a few weeks. Uh, If you're going to be there, hit me up. I would love to connect. Anyway, speaking of continuing education, what's almost as bad in my mind is the people who have been in the field for a long time and may or may not have learned things the right way, but they get, they get stuck in these ways of doing things and they think they know everything. So they purposefully don't participate in continuing education when the opportunity is available. And worse yet, they teach the next generation of neuromonitorists the same methods and techniques they learned years before. Whether incorrect or outdated, it's a terrible, vicious cycle that really has to be broken. If you're not participating in continuing education, and I mean in a meaningful way, I mean really engaged in learning at least eight hours per year, you're so missing out. The world is passing you by, and people who avoid continuing education are really doing a great disservice by, well, first, using incorrect or outdated methods to care for patients, and second, teaching the younger generation of practitioners to do the same thing. To make matters a little bit worse, there are actually a fair amount of people out there, believe it or not, who think they're high performers, but are actually low performers. And they have absolutely no clue about this fact because no one has told them, and they have no visibility to legit high performers for comparison. Of course, I really can't say this enough. I am not talking about everyone. There are some stellar neuromonitorists out there, and there are some mediocre ones. Like I said, there's a spectrum to everything. But in my observation, the number of lower-performing neuromonitorists on the spectrum has increased significantly, and that's really sad to me. We need to get this problem fixed ASAP. It seems to me that what's lacking here is adequate education and training, competent mentors, role models, people who will guide and support neuromonitorists and empower them, etc. But I also truly believe that anyone who really wants something like advancing their competency as a surgical neurophysiologist is capable of achieving it. I guess the question to ask yourself is, how much do you want it? How much do you want to make a career of this? Even if neuromonitoring is just a stepping stone for you, maybe because you're going to medical school, don't you want to be good at it for as long as you're doing it? I think there's a lot of people out there who've been led to believe two things. First, that you don't need to know much about neuromonitoring, surgery, anesthesiology, etc., etc., and particularly conceptually, because you have a neurologist online to supervise and guide you. And second, that your primary goal is to please the surgeon or keep the surgeon happy. Let me tell you, these two things are absolutely false. I'll explain. When it comes to knowledge, I don't think there's very good guidance out there for you. And I also think it may be difficult for neuromonitorists to extract the relevant information from published guidelines because they tend to be so dense even though they're all readily available for free on society websites like ASNM, ASSET, and ACNS. So let me give you the basics. At a very minimum, I believe 
you need to understand how to use your neuromonitoring software inside and out. I mean total fluency. Your ability to make any adjustment in that software should be absolutely reflexive. You need to know the appropriate gains, filters, and displays for all modalities. You need to know the correct montages for SSCPs and how they should be displayed. You need to know the generators of all evoked potentials and how best to capture them. So that means you need to know the correct electrode positions for EEG, SSCPs, motors, and EMG, and more. You need to know the best stimulating parameters for all modalities and which changes will produce what effects, desired or not. You need to have enough knowledge of what you're doing and why so you can explain it to a surgeon or anesthesiologist. You need to know what to document, when, why, and how. And finally, you need to know how to administer a basic neuro exam with the ability, at a minimum, to perform manual muscle testing. Some people think this is outside of their scope because you're, quote, making a diagnosis. This is false. It is not a diagnosis. Also, you're working under the direct supervision of a neurologist who is privileged at the facility where you're working, licensed in that state, and delegating this responsibility to you. So you should do it before and after every surgery whenever you have access to the patient. All of these basics that I mentioned are probably not comprehensive, but they do represent the absolute minimum knowledge every neuromonitorist should have, again, reflexively, before covering any case by themselves. Beyond that, you can be far more effective in the care that you deliver to patients and the influence you earn in the OR by taking it up a notch. For example, if you understand anatomy along with the stages of surgery and the associated risks, then you can understand why certain modalities make sense to monitor. With that knowledge, you can make informed recommendations to the surgeon with an explanation as to why, instead of asking them, do you want motors? You can tell them why they should incorporate motors. You can take this a step further by learning the basics of reading imaging and you can have conversations with the surgeon about the patient's pathology. If you have a deep understanding of how anesthetic agents affect the nervous system and how they impact neuromonitoring data specifically, you'll be in a better position to explain why you want TIVA to an anesthesiologist instead of simply asking for it. By observing your surroundings and talking to other people in the OR, you can learn why they're doing what they're doing. Do you notice a pattern here? If you want to take your work to the next level, you need to gain a conceptual understanding of your work and the work of those around you to understand why about everything. Okay, let's shift gears here and talk about pleasing the surgeon. If your idea of pleasing the surgeon is being a quiet mouse in the corner or tying their gowns, telling them jokes, playing good music, and answering their phones, I can tell you the surgeon may be friendly to you, but they won't respect you. If you want to please the surgeon and earn respect, do a good job, demonstrate knowledge, communicate effectively, participate as part of the team, always stick around to see how the patient wakes up, and always keep it professional. Just keep in mind that people want to know that you care before they care what you know. So show them you care about your work, about the well-being of the patient, about everything. The rest will follow, I promise. Here's the thing. What I listed as the basics a few minutes ago, I think most people have some of that to some degree. 
but very, very, very few have all of it. And the consequences of not having all of it is the data quality turns out to be poor. There are too many false positives or false negatives. There are so many surgeons who don't have high opinions of neuromonitoring in general, and the neurologists are pulling out their hair on the other end of the internet. It's really unfair to everyone, and particularly the patient, when you don't have a high level of ownership over your work, and that comes in the form of competency and conceptualization, understanding why. Oddly, many neuromonitorists don't seem to be aware of the fact that they can be sued or what the potential consequences are of having that happen. Honestly, the last thing in the world that you want is to have the quality of your work and your documentation, to have your competency scrutinized by an attorney as you answer questions for five hours in a deposition while you're being sued for millions of dollars. Seriously, folks, not for one hot second should you ever think that this hasn't happened before or that you are immune to the possibility of it happening to you. It has happened. It does happen. But don't let medical legal concerns be the driver of your work. When you work in healthcare, you need to get better every day at what you do every single day for the next patient and the next. Choosing to remain stagnant in your career is a very selfish decision. And there's just no room for that on the front lines of patient care. There are plenty of opportunities out there for education and continuing education, both free and cheap. Take advantage of them. You know what my favorite Denzel Washington line is? King Kong ain't got shit on me! Just kidding. That's from Training Day. Um, no, it actually, uh, it actually comes from a commencement speech that he once gave at Dillard University and someone recently shared with me. It's, it's so relevant. I just have to read it to you. Here's what he says. So have dreams, but have goals, life goals, yearly goals, monthly goals, daily goals, simple goals, but have goals and understand that to achieve these goals, you must apply discipline and consistency every day, not just one Tuesday and not just two days. You have to work at it. Every day you have a plan. Every day you heard that saying, we don't plan to fail. We fail to plan. Hard work works. Working really hard is what successful people do. Just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. And everything you want good, you can have. So claim it. Work hard to get it. When you get it, reach back. Pull someone else up. Each one teaches one. Don't just aspire to make a living. Aspire to make a difference. That's it. That's the attitude you need to have when you're going to work with patients. Okay, so the next topic I want to cover is these perspectives that many neuromonitorists hold about neurologists. I hear people say things like, and this is a quote, it's easy for them to put all these things in chat because they're not the ones being yelled at by the surgeons. Or I hear people making assumptions that neurologists don't know what it's like to work in the OR. I think that's really unfair to neurologists. Making assumptions about other people without knowing them or understanding their circumstances, it shows a lack of empathy. You're supposed to be a team. They went through years of medical training, including school, residency, and fellowship to learn to do what they do and how they do it. 
All they really want from the neuromonitorists is to collect high quality data, share with them what's happening in any given moment in the OR, and communicate their comments from chat to the relevant people in surgery. At the end of the day, it's really not a huge ask. But this aversion to working with neurologists isn't benefiting anyone. Sure, sometimes it sucks answering questions and communicating things to surgeons that they don't want to hear or that make them angry, but unfortunately, for better or for worse, that's kind of the job of a neuromonitorist. It comes with the territory. The patient is lying there under anesthesia hoping that everyone will do their job and do it well. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how uncomfortable it makes people, everyone must work together and communicate for neuromonitoring to work. It's a two-way street. So try to give those neurologists some slack and find a way to work together. Okay, we're going to take a break here in a second. And when I come back, I will be joined by the very brilliant and lovely Beth Wells for a new segment called Domestic Debate. I will introduce a debatable topic and will throw down. I mean, who better to argue with than your wife? Am I right? Okay, let's pause here for a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Zinnia X. Zinnia X is a state-of-the-art electronic health record platform that helps you manage every aspect of your neuromonitoring practice. Their web, mobile, chat, and screen share applications are seamlessly integrated, allowing users to get things done from anywhere and on any device. Zinnia X uses the most cutting-edge technology to provide an efficient user experience and dramatically reduce man hours spent performing mundane tasks. Schedule your demo by visiting them at zinniax.com. That's Z-I-N-N-I-A-X.com. Let Zinnia X help you put the focus back on patient care and growing your business today. And we're back. All right, let's get into this new segment. This is going to be fun. This segment is called Domestic Debate. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! All right, welcome to the show, Beth Wells. The topic of conversation for us today is going to be starting salary for an inexperienced neuromonitorist. And just to set the stage, um, a few years ago when I was in a position to hire people as a neuromonitorist, I had the opportunity to review resumes and interview people. And we had these people that were coming out of these neurodiagnostic programs with basically no experience. And they were demanding six-figure salaries and even management positions. And it was just wild for me to think of at the time. And I started thinking, well, okay, what do I have for comparison out there aside from what experience people make? So I thought, well, okay, a physician that graduates medical school starts as a resident. In their first year, they make about 55000 And if they're in residency for eight years, they'll max out at about 65000 And a graduate student with a PhD makes about the same amount of money over the course of seven years. So starts at fifty-five, over seven years being a doctor, maxes out at about sixty-five, And... That to me seems like maybe underpayment, but for somebody who's fresh out of a bachelor program or a neurodiagnostic technical college, whatever it is, 
for somebody to demand to have a six-figure salary for me was kind of wild. And so I brought in Beth to get her perspective on this because maybe maybe I'm just thinking about it wrong. What, what do you think? Well, I think you're thinking about it wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Thanks, okay. for, thanks for inviting me. Um, so as a person who came out of bachelor's degree who didn't know uh, what they were doing, I, I think I have a... Um, a good perspective on this. So you're speaking about people that are in the education system, right? And residents or um, PhDs being paid by a university or by a hospital system. That's a structure that exists out there. Um, As soon as you move into the commercial marketplace, you can get paid anything for anything. But when I started in IONM, my first job, the salary was $30,000, not six figures. And I wasn't demanding more than that. And this is going no back more than 20 years, right? Well, 20 years. 20 years. Yep. Well, okay. So, um, so what you're saying is the market pays what the market will bear, right. essentially. Right. Okay, so what about if you look at something like ZipRecruiter? ZipRecruiter says that the neurodiagnostic and specifically neuromonitorist salary range goes from um, 45 to about 75, and the average is about 72 across the country. Um, Those are for people who are just starting out and people who have been in the field for a long time. So that's that's an average. What do you think is somebody coming out of school who doesn't have any experience? Do they fall in the middle of that range? Do they fall at the upper end of that range, higher than that? Is it, can, can we pin down a number here? Or is well, it really I mean, just it, like what the market will bear? It depends on what people will pay for that position. like. It depends on the cost of living and the money and the budget. If it, if they're being hired by a hospital to join a neurodiagnostic team, then it's whatever that level would make. But whenever it's a, um, what do you call them, technical services? Technical services companies. Okay. Technical yeah. services yep. company who is hiring someone. If they really need to fill that role and the market that that role would cover... Um, if they stand to make a lot of money by filling filling that position, then they may pay more for that. So I don't think you're going to nail me down to a number necessarily, but the fact that it's variable, you can't necessarily equate number of years of education or type of you know degree or credentials. You can't equate that with somebody's salary. All right, understood. And you probably wouldn't be able to nail me down on a number either. So fair enough. Um, one more question. What do you think about um, a, a program, say a college program, who is telling their students, whether they're present students or future students, that they should expect to graduate from this program in neuromonitoring and make six figures? Is that fair to the students? Should they come out expecting that? Not if they're not going to get hired with that salary. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. 
All right. Well, um, I would like to just tell everybody out there, I'm really interested to hear your perspectives. I know Asset has published a salary survey, but that's also proprietary, so I'm not going to share that. Um, send me an email. I'll share it at the end of this episode. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on starting salaries for inexperienced neuromonitoring hires. Thank you to Beth, and thank you to our dog, Polly, who's here panting right <laughs> below the microphone. Sorry if that was too intrusive. I'm uh, going to take a break here in a sec, and I'll be right back. All right, I'm back with you solo. I love getting Beth's perspective because she's usually right and because she keeps me in check. Anyway, to close out this topic, I think everyone working in neuromonitoring should have some appreciation for the idea that more money comes with providing more value. There are many different ways you can provide value in neuromonitoring, but here are two important ones for you to consider. First, if you have all of those basics that I mentioned earlier down pat and you can execute a case flawlessly every day with high quality data and documentation and then you can train other people to do the same and you're reducing the malpractice risk for your company by just being competent and you're providing high quality patient care by doing these things that's one thing that you can do second if you can transform those difficult facilities work with difficult surgeons and speak on their level guide them through changing their practices to optimize neuromonitoring and transform the entire relationship essentially adding stickiness to the account then you're keeping that account on stable ground but you can only do this when you've taken it up a notch as i mentioned earlier i mean really become an expert understanding things conceptually, knowing the answer to the question, why? Remember this, just because a surgeon appears to like you because you're a decent neuromonitorist who doesn't cause problems, doesn't mean he or she will go to bat for you or your company when the hospital is considered contracting with other companies to cut costs. If your level of knowledge, expertise, and participation in patient care as a member of the team is obvious to everyone in the room every day, they'll go to bat for you because they value you. That's not always the same as being liked. If the client truly values you, then your company will too. That's how you move up the ladder, and that's how I believe you move up the income ladder. That and time and certification, etc., etc., etc. So before you take that first job interview, I just want you to understand what's realistic and what expectations you should have for salaries and positions. And that's why I brought in Beth for her perspective as well. And I think you need to understand the level of work and commitment it takes to advance in this field. In the words of Chris Tucker's character, Smokey, from one of my favorite movies, Friday, take your time. You got to crawl before you walk. Okay. One last thing that I want to say to some of the maybe newer folks in the field is that I've seen a lot of jumping around between jobs and it doesn't look good. I've seen resumes from neuromonitorists who have been working in neuromonitoring for six years at three or four or five different companies. It's one of the things that hiring managers notice when looking at resumes because they don't want to hire and train someone only to lose them in a year or two. I certainly understand the need to change jobs happen sometimes, but you need to demonstrate that you're someone who doesn't jump ship when things get tough, or if the grass appears to be greener on the other side. By the way, it's usually not. You need to demonstrate that you can make a commitment. Okay, 
I've beaten this topic to death. Let's move on to managers now. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend as much time on this, probably for, I don't know, two reasons. The first is, I think that a lot of what I would say to managers, I probably already said to executive leaders in the last episode and to neuromonitorists in this episode. I have also some great interviews lined up with managers that I would love to hear share their experiences and their ideas about management and neuromonitoring. And I don't want to steal their thunder. So I'll just say a few things. Let me start by saying that your perspective, your role is critical because you essentially serve as the bridge connecting neuromonitorists, hospital staff, surgeons, schedulers, and executive leaders. You're in the best position to understand everyone's concerns and share them with the others. In fact, you represent everyone's concerns. It's important to build relationships, build trust, and communicate with everyone often. This means managing up, managing down, and side to side. If you're like most managers in neuromonitoring, you probably found your way to this role because you had tenure over your peers, or maybe you were better clinically, but you probably got zero management training, right? That's kind of a problem if you think about it, but it's also somewhat understandable. I mean, many companies need managers, but they don't necessarily have the financial resources to put you through school or other types of formal management training. So it's a catch-22. It's impossible for me, anyway, to give comprehensive advice to managers about how to manage in a single episode of a podcast. I mean, there are college and graduate programs dedicated to management, entire podcast series dedicated to management, and probably tens of thousands of books out there. For you, with limited time and budget, the best advice that I can give you in a single podcast episode in a few seconds is to read. And I'll give you a couple of starter recommendations. So first, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. Second, uh, The Leadership Contract by Vince Molinaro. Third, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, I believe. And fourth, on managing people. This is a compilation of papers from Harvard Business Review. Oh, and beyond that, just learning business, I think a great resource is the Wall Street Journal. Somebody recommended that I start reading that when I was studying for the GREs, and I've been doing it ever since. It's a fantastic resource. Also, I think it's really important to keep in mind that management and neuromonitoring isn't just about scheduling cases, assigning neuromonitorists to cover them, and approving PTO. People are relying on you to defend, develop, and empower them. You need to balance being a friend and being a boss. The fact is, leadership, if you haven't found this out already, you will, is difficult. If there's one common factor that all leaders experience, it is criticism. The very people that you work closely with as a manager will probably talk about you, but they'll still love and respect you as long as they know you're willing to do two things. First, always be willing and able to jump in and help out. Just because you're a manager, you're not better or more important than anyone else, and you're not exempt from doing the difficult and dirty work. Second, always defend 
protect and empower your team. And probably also important, communicate with them. Keep them informed about what's going on. I would not get flustered if your team is venting to you or about you. You know what? People need to vent and they need the space to do it. Right or wrong, it's going to happen. And you may be the one they vent about because you sometimes have to make difficult decisions. It may wax and wane, but it doesn't ever fully go away. It does get easy though as you gain more experience and comfort in your leadership role. But no matter how good you are as a leader, it comes with the territory at one point or another. Don't try to friend your way out of it and don't try to buy favoritism. Just be a good leader. The way I like to think about it is this. If you can look yourself in the mirror every night and honestly tell yourself that you navigated your day with integrity, supported the people around you, and empowered those reporting to you, then sometimes, some days, that's the best you can do. It never hurts to explain your decisions and actions. People will be more receptive to your difficult decisions if they understand the context in which those decisions were made and why. Okay, I'm almost done here. One more thing. One issue that you will definitely deal with as a manager is an employee turnover. Don't get flustered by the mere fact that someone leaves and don't take offense to the passive aggressive posts that people make about managers on LinkedIn. Just be there to support your team, your company, and your clients. The rest will follow. In the meantime, do whatever you can to learn business and learn management. Start with the books and resources that I mentioned earlier and try to find yourself a good, competent mentor in management. That person doesn't need to come from neuromonitoring, and honestly, they probably shouldn't, but they do need to have enough expertise in management to teach you something, and they need to have the time to take you under their wing and mentor you properly. Okay, that's all for today. I hope you found some of this useful. Please join me next time when I'll be sharing what oversight professionals need to know about what's happening in neuromonitoring. In the meantime, please send your questions and comments to stimulatingstuffpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Rich Vogel, and this is Stimulating Stuff. The information and opinions provided in this podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent the opinions of their employers, affiliates, or other third-party individuals or organizations. Sponsorship and other advertising messages do not constitute support of or preference for specific products or services. This podcast is not designed to and does not provide medical advice, diagnosis, opinion, treatment, or services. This podcast is host and all participants, including guests and sponsors, collectively participants, provide general information for entertainment purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is not a substitute for medical or professional opinion, and you should not use the information for that purpose. Participants shall not be held liable or responsible for any advice, course of treatment, diagnosis, or any other information, services, or product you obtain or render. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. Thank you for listening.